Welcome to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. This is the place where you'll learn cutting-edge personal brand strategies from today's most recognizable influencers. We're going to teach you how to build a rock-solid reputation and then how to turn that reputation into revenue. I'm your lead host, Rory Vaden, co-founder of Brand Builders Group, Hall of Fame speaker, and New York Times bestselling author of Take the Stairs. Well, one of the joys of my life of being a speaker is that I get to see other speakers. And my entire life, I've come across speakers who I've gotten to know personally, who have climbed Mount Everest and walked out of the Andes Mountains on barefoot and won you know, national championships and world championships and just overcome really amazing things. And today, I feel like I'm meeting one of those people for the first time. You're about to meet Chris Norton. We're new friends, so we've never even talked, but I have been familiar with his story. He knows my friend Tyler Dickerhoof and you know a lot of the same people and some of the same circles that we've been hanging out with, David Nurse. And I've heard really great things about Chris. And he had a spinal cord injury when he was playing college football and lost all feeling and movement from his neck down. He was only given a 3% chance of ever really moving and walking again. And it was you know, clearly a, a difficult and dark moment in his life. But with the support of his friends and family, uh, like the love of his life, Emily, Chris proved the doctors wrong. He walked across the stage at graduation and the video of that went viral, like around, around the world. And later he walked his bride, Emily, seven yards down the aisle at their wedding. So his story has been published in a book. It was been a documentary about his life story is out right now on Netflix and Amazon Prime and Apple TV. It's called Seven Yards, referring to the seven yards of Chris walking his wife down the aisle. Seven Yards, the Chris Norton story. And he is a really fast rising speaker and just an awesome guy. And so, uh, Chris, it's great to meet you. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Rory, for having me and for that great introduction. It's just an honor to talk with you and I've heard so many great things about yourself. So great to be here. So tell me this story, man. So you are living the dream. One moment you're playing college football and then in a second it changes. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll take you back 11 years ago. Yeah, freshman year, Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. Living the dream. I had these big plans for myself. Be this all-American football player, meet the girl of my dreams. And then I was hoping to make enough money to own a lake house or better yet, the girl of my dreams family already owned. <laughs> A lake house, but then you know life happens, and it was during the sixth game of my college football season, third quarter, we're mounting a comeback. So I run out to the field for the kickoff, and the kicker huddles us up. He calls a play, mortar kick right, which is simply a, a short, high-arching kick to the right side of the field. And I don't know why we didn't just call it kick right because our kicker was so bad. Every kick was short and high arching. (laughs) Anyway, you know, I'm pumped because I play on the right side of the field. So it's my opportunity to make an impact. So I line up, the ball's kicked. I sprint downfield as hard as I possibly can go. I see an opening for me. And my instincts are telling me that ball carrier, he's going to try running through that gap. But I'm going to stop him. 
I'm going to drive my shoulder so hard through his legs. He's going to drop the ball. I go for it. I collide with them at full speed, full force, but I mistime my tackle by a split second. Instead of getting my head in front of the ball carrier, my head collides right with his knees. Hmm. In an instant, I lose all feeling of movement from my neck down. I'm listening to the players crash into each other above me. Now the whistle blows, the pile clears off, but I can't get up. No matter how hard I try to push through my arms and onto the ground, nothing is working. I was completely conscious, not in any pain, just couldn't move. And wow. it felt like someone just flipped the power off to my body. And what I didn't know at the time was I just suffered a severe spinal cord injury and my life was about to drastically change. So was the reason you weren't in any pain was just because you lost all feeling? Yeah. So your spinal cord, the nervous system, it communicates with your brain. So pretty much it got almost completely severed where even all pain, feeling, everything was disconnected temporarily from the neck down. So that's why I couldn't feel any pain, anything, no movement. I was because of the damage done to the spinal cord. Wow. So what happens next? So they clearly they wheel you off the field. You start going to doctors and getting tests. And like, when's the first time that you hear that you're not going to be able to walk again? Yes, I'm flown out to Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, get x-rayed, all these tests done to get me ready for surgery. And it was right before surgery. I haven't been asking questions. I've been too scared to ask like what's going to happen because I wanted to make sure they had all the information that they needed to give me the best answer possible, at least the most informed answer possible. And when I asked the surgeon right before I put the slate, you know, Hey, will I walk again? And in my mind, that's a huge compromise. I, I was you know, praying and bargaining with God, like, Hey, I will give up sports. I don't need to play another sport in my life, which at the time, like, that's a huge deal. Like, I was an athlete. That was my identity. I love competition. I love competing in the weight room, everything involved with athletics. I love, and I could give that all up, but just let me walk. And when I asked him that, I could just see in his face. The answer was no. And he just looks down at the ground and says, I don't know. And then I'm put to sleep after that. And I, when he said that too, I just started crying. Like I lost it. I was like really holding it in, trying to be tough, trying to be strong, trying to be optimistic that things are going to be okay. It's going to work out because leading up to this point, everything always worked out for me. I never had gone through anything life altering, not myself or even people close to me. It just wasn't on my radar that something like this could happen to me. I thought it happened to people you read about in the newspaper, you watch on television, but not my life. Like, I thought I was immune to that. And it was just, my world was just shattered in that moment. And then I wake up the next day, blurry. So how long were you in, how long were you in surgery? The surgery lasted about four hours. Wow. And then I wake up, you know, the next day, you know, groggy, blurry eyed, thinking I just had the worst nightmare of my life. But then, you know, the surgeon comes in and confirms my worst nightmare is now my new reality. And he says, Chris, you have a 3% chance to ever move or feel below the neck. And that's not a 3% chance to walk. That's a 3% chance to move or to feel, to scratch an itch on your face, to feed wow. yourself. 
And it was just so surreal. I, I could hardly process it because yesterday at this time I was walking. I was suiting up for my college football game. And then all of a sudden I'm lying in the hospital, paralyzed from the neck down with a 3% chance to ever move or feel again. And, and so you can't move your hands, your toes, you can't raise your arm. You're just completely still, but totally no. conscious and com- fully mentally aware. Yeah, completely. Wow. Like I know how to move my body. Like I know what it takes to you know, move my hand to my face or to adjust my leg or pull the covers up. But like literally nothing would respond or work. I felt like I was a head detached from my body and just looking at the rest of my body. It was just a foreign object because I had no connection to it at all. So the doctor tells you that. So that happens like within a day or two. And then how long are you in the hospital? And like, when do you come home? Because I have to think it starts to really become real when you leave the hospital and like your whole life is different. I mean, can't shower, can't eat, can't get dressed. Yeah, it was slow than just kind of grind from that moment on of, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get a little bit better. I'm going to be part of that 3%. I won't be that 97% who don't recover from this. And so I just make that commitment of just understanding that, you know, your future will take care of itself when you take care of today. And I kept reminding myself that your future will take care of itself when you take care of today. And so I just kept trying to get a little bit better each and every day. And, you know, by the you know grace of God and uh, perseverance and grit, family and friends, uh, I slowly started to make a recovery where I had some movement in my legs, some movement in my arms, unable to like walk independently or do much independence wise. But I was inpatient for about four months, outpatient for about three months. And that was all in Rochester, Minnesota, which is about three hours from my home. So when I officially made that move back home in Des Moines, Iowa, it was a huge transition, like you're suggesting, like the going from you know, your house, you know, my room was upstairs. Mm-hmm. So I've never been back to my bedroom because I can't, it's stairs. And just realizing all these obstacles that you have to navigate and the way of life, you have to look at it from an accessibility mindset and of not just being able to breeze over obstacles. So it was definitely a large change, but thankfully, you know, my parents were very encouraging. They, they pushed me to get out of my comfort zone. They weren't going to let me just, you know, stay home and feel sorry for myself. They got me out there. And eventually I went back to college actually the following fall and my buddies became my caregivers and my sister relocated to apartment just off campus to help with the huge transition. And then I slowly started to kind of get my life back together. And, and that's when I started to realize too, like, you know, happiness is not measured in steps, right? There's people who can run, jump and swim who are unhappy. So, you know, clearly happiness has nothing to do with your physical strength or possessions, everything to do with your mindset and your mental health. And I began to to see those pieces as I kind of got my life back into a new routine. How soon did you really embrace that? I mean, like, I mean, there's got to be, I mean, I have to feel like there's like this wave of hopelessness and despair, right? Has to be of like, oh my gosh, like I'm not going to, be running and jumping maybe ever again, maybe walking never again to then going, well, that doesn't mean I can't be happy ever again. And realizing like what you just shared that like, there's a lot of people who can do those things who are unhappy. Absolutely. So it wasn't a flip of a switch. I'll tell you that. I know me talking about it might make it sound easy and it's not for anybody who's 
gone through something life altering, it, it takes time to kind of pick up the pieces and to learn a new way of living and a new beginning, really kind of restarting your life. And it, it took years actually for me to come to that conclusion that, you know, I can still live a meaningful life, you know, adversity and failure are a part of life. And if you try holding on to it, it's going to rob you of your future. Now, things will never be perfect, but just because you aren't getting the results you want or living the life you dreamed of doesn't mean you stop trying or that's not a life worth living for. And so by, you know, getting back out there, getting my education, being with my buddies, starting to date again, met Emily, started my own foundation, started speaking. I begin to see, you know, I can still live a meaningful life right from my wheelchair. And at first, when I was first injured and even those first couple of years, I thought that would be impossible. Like for me to get my life back meant me getting back to walking on my own, no wheelchair. And so if I wasn't going to be walking, being in a wheelchair would mean failure. And that for some reason, I thought that I would not be a good enough person or I would not be seen as valuable by being in a wheelchair. But putting myself out there, building friendships, relationships, starting the business, giving back to others, serving others, I begin to realize, you know, that's that was a lie. It's not true. I was attached to this idea that you have to be walking to live a good life. And it's just not true. And I know it gets portrayed all the time, though. I mean, I go out in public, I get people all the time. I don't hold it against them, but they're always like, I mean, I feel so sorry for you. Oh my gosh, you're in a wheelchair. Like, oh man, I, I can't imagine. Like, they're very sympathetic and because they're kind of projecting their own fears like onto me that I think right. about it all the time and that I'm miserable all the time. And I'm not like, I, I focus on what I can do. And, and what people don't fail to realize too, being in a wheelchair and having a spinal cord injury actually has some great perks to it. And in fact, like a couple of my favorite perks is like, there's no standing in line. Like while people are waiting in line, complaining that their feet hurt, their legs are tired. You know, I'm just chilling in my chair. Like it's really <laughs> comfortable. Or like when you go somewhere, there's a front row parking spot. For, like you get the best parking. Now, where I live in South Florida, it's really competitive here for those parking spots. But, uh, <laughs> you get know, little things like that, and uh, you can't feel mosquito bites. I can have 30 mosquitoes on my legs at a campfire, and I don't feel a thing. It's awesome. So there's so many little things that you can find in your life to appreciate if you have the will. And that's what I've really kind of developed the muscle for is focusing on what I can do. Where are the areas that I can influence and make a change and, and not keep my attention on what I can't control or what I, or I can't do? And that's easier said than done, obviously. Like there are definitely moments where I'm just like, man, this sucks. Like, I see my kids playing in the pool. I want to jump in there. I want to throw them around. I want to play catch with them with the baseball and teach them how to swing a bat. There's so many things, you know, like that are hard and frustrating, but I have to then just go back to, Okay, what kind of dad can I be? What kind of husband can I be? Not the one I wish I could be, but you can still be a great dad, even though I'm not in the pool with them or teach them how to throw a ball. And so there's definitely things that you have to just embrace and accept, but that's life too, right? There, there's things that you have to just learn to let go of if you want to live a, a meaningful, purposeful life. And you said that like the first year or so, was it like a year or two to where you really started to come around? Because I can sense that just in talking to you that you you know, you're not unhappy. You're really happy. You've got all these great friendships and you've got kids and a family, like you're doing all these great things with your business. Was it like a year or two to get to that point? Yeah, it was 
it was very gradual. You know, it's just little moments that just kept, you know, opening my eyes to that possibility of like, well, maybe if I don't walk, I'll still be okay. It takes time. It took, yeah, like I said, years, probably three or four years to really come to terms with that. Probably, probably more like maybe four years to really come to terms with that, like peacefully, where I stopped holding on to this idea of I must walk. Because I trained all the time. I was putting in, even with a full load of school credits, you know, sometimes six to eight hours of training on top of college and trying to do everything to live a college experience. Like I was obsessed with working out and trying to get my strength back. And, you know, I'm glad I did. I'm glad I tried it because I can look back now and say, you know what? I gave it a try. I tried to get as much strength back as possible. And I brought myself a long ways, but it just wasn't in the cards. Like at some point, you kind of realize the writing's on the wall that you need to make a transition, right? You need to make a pivot. And that's what I did. And I started to focus more on contributing back to others, serving others through my motivational speaking that I love to do and through my foundation, the Chris Norton Foundation. And then we, you know, begin fostering and adopting. So I have a load of kids, like seven kids right now, bro. Wow. Seven (laughs) kids. Yeah. And then the documentary and the books. And so I'm just trying to give back, serve others. I feel like I was called to do this and to use my story and my testimony to give people hope and to see the possibilities, even with the adversity that they're facing, even when their lives have completely been flipped upside down, there is still a way forward, even if it's not the way that you want to go. Hi, it's AJ Vaden, and thanks for listening to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. Did you know that the ideas we share on the show are things we actually specialize in helping you implement? If you want to raise your public profile and turn your reputation into revenue, please visit freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for a free brand strategy call with one of our personal brand strategists. Again, that's freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for your free call. Talk to you soon. Wow, man. What an amazing perspective. Like, so walk us through like the, a little bit of your personal brand story. Like, so this happens to you. So like, what year does this happen? And then is the first like real big development, they filmed you at graduation and that went viral. Was that kind of like the first, like, whoa, my story is inspiring a lot of other people. It actually happened right when it took place with my injury. So my family, when I was injured, a lot of people were messaging them like, what's the updates? Like how Chris doing today? Like, is there any progress? And instead of messaging back individually, like a hundred people, they started what's called a caring bridge page. It's pretty much just like an online blog set up for families who are updating others on a, and they're in the hospital or something. So you don't have to, you know, like I said, message everyone individually. So they post updates on what I was doing, what the family was doing, the progress. And people began following that blog very closely. I think it had like 400,000 hits or something of people just following along the story and how people were inspired by my attitude that I was going to beat this and I was going to get better and I wasn't going to quit and stop working. And people were writing like, Hey, like, 
I stopped going to church. I'm dealing with depression. And um, after hearing your story, it's given me the courage to get back out there, to go back to church or to to find a job or to pick up my life, although it may feel broken at the moment. And so when you start reading these stories and you're being told how, you know, just me trying to get better, I wasn't trying to be an inspiration. I was trying to get my life back. But when people are writing to you and saying like, they have a different perspective on life because of how you live yours. Like, wow, like that gave me motivation. That gave me more purpose because there were times when I wanted to give up on myself where I wanted to quit. But when I thought about the other people who were looking to me for inspiration and hope, I didn't want to give up on them. I, I wanted them to find their own courage through me. And so that's why I kept going in a lot of cases and why I keep even going today. Uh, I just feel like there's an opportunity to inspire others. So uh, that's all to say that next year, maybe like a small group, like an FCA group at a high school, like, hey, can you share your testimony with us? Like, how do you stay positive and get through your challenges? And so I started just sharing my story just very offhand, just from the hip. And people were leaning in, they were listening. They wanted to know what I had to say about life and staying hopeful and how to get through adversity. And I liked the fact that they were leaning in, they wanted to know more and I could, you know, kind of captivate an audience and entertain them and, and give them the tools to, to improve their lives. And like, this feels good. And then someone told me, Hey, you know, you can make money by being a, a motivational speaker. Like what? You can get paid to just speak <laughs> yeah. to people on a stage. I thought that was just like a, like an honor or like a privilege just to get up there. And it's like a free thing. And like, no, like this is something people do for a living full time. And if it's something you want to do, you should definitely pursue it. And ever since I heard that and I knew I could, you know, make a living from helping others and living out my purpose, like sign me up. And so I started just speaking everywhere I could. I mean, anybody who would listen and no matter how small the group was or how far away, I wanted to, to share my story and testimony. And it just kind of snowballed into, you know, a business that can take care of my whole family and live comfortably. So with those fairly early speaking engagements, like you, you start out doing them for free. How many do you think you did before you started charging? And did you just kind of like, did most of the people find you just from hearing your story from other people and they came to you or did you have some way of contacting them and finding them? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. So some of it, it was like, go for the low hanging fruit, like my old high school and elementary and middle school, like get to speak to them. Uh, That's pretty easy entry point or just a local elementary or church group. I just tried to reach out to as many people that I knew who had a group and they, who would want to bring in speakers. I, I did a ton of rotary clubs uh, because I know they would bring in guests and I would say, you know, 95% of those were all free. Just, I knew I needed the practice. I needed the at bats. It wasn't something that just came natural to me. I felt comfortable on stage, but I didn't have a just a charismatic, entertaining way of doing it unless I practiced and worked on it. I started videotaping every single speech so I could go back and watch it as painfully as I was. I knew I had to watch the film. And then I you know, started hiring coaches and people that could help you know transform my message and uh, get me even further. And when I realized that to get more speeches, you have to have a killer speech. Like that's how you get more. It's, it's a referral business. And I didn't want to depend on my viral moments or my story to get me in the door. I wanted my presentation and 
the transformation that can occur from it to be what opens the door for places. And I knew that was going to be what would sustain my business long-term. So I think if I've gotten good advice, good people around me to kind of point in the right direction and to get it to where it is today, but I don't want to, my story to be, while it is, you know, what definitely draws people in to want to hire me, it's not what lifts my business. It's the presentation and the time I feel that I put into it to make it very entertaining and humorous and uplifting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so how does the Netflix thing happen? How does a documentary come about? Was that something that you kind of went out and were seeking or did somebody come to you? And like, what are the mechanics of getting a documentary film and putting it together? And how long does that take? Like the whole thing? Yeah, it was a long process. It was after my graduation walk video went viral, a small production company out of Dallas. The Photolanthropy was the name. And they love sharing uplifting, inspiring stories. Now, first they just offered, hey, we would love to give you a gift by just filming your wedding. And we would come there, they have you know professional cameras and a crew and capture it, maybe put together like a little short inspirational video for people. But then it just kind of snowballed from that to let's do a full-blown documentary. They've done two before. So this would be their third one. And it was just the right timing. And so we began you know, filming, promoting it even before the walk, actually. So we named the movie Seven Yards before I could even walk seven yards. That was a little scary. Wow. <laughs> but I knew it, it gave me something to shoot for. It gave me something to really work on. But yeah, it's a lot of... Uh, so they're a small production house. It's not like a big Hollywood thing where they have a bunch of funding and money to do this or that. Basically, what we had to do, it was a nonprofit. So basically, we'd have to fundraise, then we'd film a little bit. And then once the money ran out, we stopped, you know, try to get some fundraising, get some money. And then once we did, we'd go out and do some more filming. So it was really stop and go, stop and go, strung together over years, really. Wow. Began filming in 2017, and the movie came out in 2021 to kind of give you an idea of four years in the making Wow, happened. But so we kept shooting, kept filming. They put it together, found an agent that would, you know, get in the doors of somewhere like a Netflix and Apple TV and Amazon prime. And thankfully by the, you know, grace of God that Netflix wanted it. And so we were able to get it in there. And then at first I'm thinking it's not a Netflix original. So, you know, some titles on their platform have the end in the corner and that's a Netflix original film. They, they give some most marketing and promotion and backing. Well, so this one's just an independent title. So my mind, it's going to get on there. It's going to get buried. Netflix is loaded with films, documentaries, all these things. Like no one's ever going to see it. And then it just exploded. Like it was on trending and popular. It started to receive thousands of messages of just how encouraged, inspired they were from this film. So I was wow. so blown away by the response to that film. And I'm so glad that it could get out there and really make a difference to many people. That's really, really cool. Like, what does it cost to film a documentary? Is it like millions of dollars? Is it a couple hundred thousand dollars? Well, I mean, it kind of depends on what you're using and uh, gotcha. some of the different elements to it. But this one would be like, 250,000, I think, all in when you pay 
all the people involved, all the editing, the equipment, the rentals, the travel, like it's a ton of stuff, ton of stuff. And they were able to get it like at 250,000, which is considering what is on Netflix or what's out there. That is a very low budget film. (laughs) Wow. That's really, really cool, man. So what next? So you have seven kids. So you and Emily got married. You've adopted seven kids. Adopted six, and then we're fostering one right now. So we've fostered a total of 19 kids in all. That's something that was a a passion of my wife that she then passed on to me and helped open my eyes to all the kids who don't feel loved, who are coming from abusive homes, and they're either put with a foster family, they're put into group homes, which is, you know, they used to call it orphanages, but now it's, they're called group homes. And so we, we just breaks our heart when we hear these stories of these kids needing a home and a place to go. They don't feel loved and wanted and like they belong. And so try to help them to see their value and how loved they are by, by us and by God and everybody. It's been a really neat calling and it's really made our lives just gives us more meaning these kids and you know we kind of went into it we're going to help them but you know they, they give just as much back to you just having them in your lives they're all very special and, and unique so that's been an incredible thing that's and then what's it's, next though yeah is sorry i was gonna add that too is yeah now i'm, I'm gonna do a, an unscripted tv show now with netflix of just how to help people find a way forward of how can you pick up the pieces of something life-altering and continue down the road. So kind of like a fixer upper, but for the soul really mm. is how uh, we are calling it. So we'd like to get this show up and going and find a home for it. But that's kind of my next project outside of speaking. Like speaking is always going to be, I feel like my number one thing. I, I love doing it. And, mm. but I also want to get, do some more TV stuff and try to do something reality TV wise. That's, meaningful and purposeful and it's going to help people's lives. Yeah. I never even realized that that was how, cause that's how the book business works, right? You create a book proposal, get a literary agent, the literary agent takes the proposal, shops it to publishers. They give you an advance and then you sell a bunch of copies or not your advance. And then you get royalties. I guess that's probably the same way a documentary works is they pay you some amount of money. And then based on the streams or something you get, you earn royalties after that. There's a lot of different ways to go about it, but that's, Probably the basic way is you you come up with a project and an idea, and then you hope that you get initial funding from like a big streaming platform like a Netflix, where they say, "Yeah, we want this," and then they'll give you a budget, they'll give you directors, producers, they'll give you kind of a team that they kind of want you to work with, and then they let you kind of run with it. Or you come to them with a finished product, and you try to get that onto their platform when it's already finished. So there's different ways to kind of go about it, but yeah, very similar to a book. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. So you're still like just speaking and maybe reality TV. Some I love the fixer upper for your soul kind of an idea. I mean, there's so many people that are hurting and broken and it seems like you're really just drawn to doing that work. Yeah. I, like I told you about the kind of that transformation for me of thinking, oh my gosh, I'm in a wheelchair. Like, my life is now over. I can't do the things that I want to do. Like the fun has stopped. I'm not going to be able to do anything exciting. Well, that's not true. I, you know, I've been skiing and I've gone on jet skis and concerts and traveling, snorkeling, and 
you know, scuba diving. Like there's so many things, hiking, mountain climbing. Like there's so many things I've been able to do and have a family and start a business. There's that. I'm not cut from a different cloth. Like I'm just from a small town in Iowa. Just like, there's nothing special about me other than just, I just try to focus on the possibilities and try to see a way forward. And, and thankfully too, I've had good people that help me to kind of open my eyes to what is possible. And I want to help be that person for more people who feel like, oh my gosh, this life altering thing, life is over. It stops now because I'm not living the life that I pictured that it would look like. And so I want to break that barrier for them and, and with a team of people to show them what is possible and empower them to, to continue to move forward. So that's uh, again, a passion project now that I'm working on that there's a lot of work ahead, but something that I'm hoping to get going. Where do you want people to go, Chris, if they want to connect with you and kind of follow your journey? Like what's the best place for them to keep up with you these days? Yeah. I mean, go to my website, chrisnorton.org to learn even more about me and connect, but Instagram and Facebook are probably my two primary places that I update and, and share what's going on. Wow, man, it really is an inspiring story. And thank you for choosing to have that attitude and for continuing to see what's possible. And because it inspires me and I know it's going to inspire a ton of people listening to this. And and I can sense you're just getting started in the impact that you're going to have globally with sharing your story. So we're grateful for you and your family and your wife. And man, we just wish you the best. Stay connected with us and, and let us know how we can help and just keep going, brother. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that, Rory. And like I said, it's an honor to be here, talk with you. I've always followed you and looked up to you as a man, as a, as a business owner, husband, father, all those things. And it's great to be able to speak with you today. That's all we've got for this episode of the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. But here's some great news. One of the most valuable things you can do to help us and other new potential listeners to find our show is for you to both rate this show and leave a review. So as a special bonus for you, if you leave us a comment in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen, take a screenshot of your review and email it to podcast at brandbuildersgroup.com. We will give you free 30-day access to 25 of our most popular interviews on video in your own private members-only area. So go right now, rate us, review us, and then send a screenshot of it into podcast at brandbuildersgroup.com. And we'll get you set up with free access to our most popular video interviews all in one place. Also, just please share, share, share this podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy it. And until next time, remember that building a business isn't nearly as valuable as building a reputation. 